Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today on the Optus Sport Football Podcast, I'm joined by journalist and presenter Phil Kittromelides, as well as Miguel Delaney, chief football writer for The Independent and a man whose Twitter bio says... DMs are open, so listeners, send away. I'm Mark Schwarzer, and welcome to the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Optus Sport Football Podcast for season 2023-24. With me today, as always, is Phil Kittromelides, direct from Madrid. I'm, not, I'm actually not jealous this week, Phil, because <laughs> I'm in Spain as well. So we're, yes. you know, we're, we're, in the same, we're in the same time zone for a change. You're in arguably a nicer place than me because I'm in Madrid, which is great, but you're down in the south, overlooking the sea, the sun is shining, so I'm a little bit jealous of you today. I like that. I mean, you're right. Absolutely. I think I, I agree with you. I think I'm in a better you place win. than you, even you though win. as much as yeah, I do yeah. love Madrid. Thank you very much. That's one nil to me. <laughs> and we've also got Miguel Delaney this week, chief football writer for The Independent and a guest uh, at the Beckham documentary premiere last week. Miguel, what was that like? Firstly, hello. And what was that like? Hello, I'm, 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 a, I'm the half Spaniard here. I'm not actually in Spain. I'm in London, which is actually surprisingly <laughs> warm. Um, it, it was, uh, I have to say, quite a surreal experience. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, I mean, Mark is a former player. <laughs> I mean, you've been around very, very famous people. Phil, I've been in Spain as well. But like, it's something like there's obviously there's football fame, and then at this. So at one point, I was walking down the stairs, and I turned to my right, and um, Louis Theroux was there, which I'm a big fan of. <laughs> and then I kind of looked over. And this is a room with only about 400 people in it, and they invited some press for some reason. And Salma Hayek is there. Uh, and then, like, you kind of got the, the bizarre scene of Steve Bruce um, <laughs> almost literally rubbing shoulders with Anna Winter. Uh, so it was, uh, yeah, you, you, you realize, um, Be- it's, or as, as someone put it to me afterwards, that's Beckham's world. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, look, it's a great, it's a great story to tell. Um, great for, for parties. Look, you not believe this. And it's whether or not it's true or false, right? True or false in a pub quiz one day. <laughs> were, were all these people at David Beckham's uh, <laughs> opening of his, of his doco? Um, and, and you can confirm, yes, he was. So you'll actually win the pub quiz every week. Um, <laughs> let's get on to Manchester United because that, we have to start there. They hung on or they came from the death. They won the game 2-1 right at the end. I mean, was it was it deserving? Do you think, Miguel? Um, not really, to be honest. Although, to be fair, I think there was a late push. I mean, it's funny you mentioned kind of even the like the the, the Beckham, uh, the premiere itself took took place on the same night as the Galatasaray game, and of course, the first one of the first moments it shows to Beckham's first goal <laughs> was in that exact fixture at, at home to Galatasaray in a Champions League game. But it's actually it was it's all the more striking watching this United against that one. I mean, like it's still almost kind of the image of Man United, this force of nature. Whereas even on Saturday, okay, it was a classic Man United comeback in that way. But there's still something so erratic and unreliable about the team. And let's not forget as well, he's only in this situation. Sorry, Ten Hag has only had this, this rescue because he didn't succeed in selling McTominay uh, during the summer. Um, I suppose the other side of all that, and because, I mean, they you don't want to be too negative after a a late 2-1 two, two stoppage time win, and given there's been so much negativity around the club, I suppose these are the sort of, these are the sort of moments that can suddenly just cause a momentum shift uh, or, or just arrest maybe some of the clear confidence issues in the team. Because I think that's something that's been so striking over the past few weeks. You can see maybe how they're trying to play Ten Hag's system, but it just it breaks down in almost inexplicable ways. And I think part of that is undeniably the pressure uh, obviously, the the club has been there's been so many off field issues, uh, some serious real world stories, some then just you know, purely football issues. With all of this under the um, all all of this, of course, is we have this uncertainty from the sale process, and it's hard not to feel the kind of the uncertainty from the sale has actually started to manifest on the pitch as well. Hmm. And this was maybe a rare moment of classic United clarity, really. 
last week we were talking on the podcast, weren't we? I, I mentioned that I'd read, a, I'd read an article which um, had a very, very brilliant descriptive headline. It simply said, Manchester United, do not create enough chances or score enough goals. And that <laughs> is genuinely what is happening game after game after game. Now, if you're not creating enough chances or scoring enough goals, you can maybe actually grind out results if you've got a really solid defence. You don't concede goals, you don't concede chances. And that is not the case with Manchester United. There is this, there's, there's nervousness throughout the team, but at the back, the, the, the palpable sense of insecurity, instability is, is there throughout almost every game. And the goal that Brentford scored is just a, a catalogue of mistakes, just really big mistakes defensively from Manchester United, which in, you know, for example, in Beckham's time or whatever, you didn't see that happening. And now there's just this insecurity. And Mark Onana, again, probably should have saved that goal. He probably should have saved a lot of goals over the last few weeks. And I don't know if if that instability stems from the uncertainty which is being transmitted from the goalkeeper, how much of a part he has to play. And we don't want to we don't want to pick on players or, or bully them or, or you know single them out every single time. But it has been a questionable start to life at Old Trafford for Onan, I think it's fair to say. I think it has been. And I think, you know what, it's interesting because Ten Hag obviously has brought in a number of players, ex-Ajax players that he's worked with before in the in the Dutch league. Um, I've watched Anana quite a bit over the years. I I know he played well last year in, in, uh, in um, Inter, but I've always questioned how good a goalkeeper he is. I know, I know he's good with his feet, um, but he's also used to playing in leagues where they're going to dominate the game, whether it's in Ajax or whether it's in uh, Inter Milan, and have a lot more time on the ball. They don't get closed down as much. The, the energy, the high pace is not the same. So that was always a big question as well. So if he's not doing well with his feet... Mm. What is he good at? What is he good at? Because I actually think technically as a goalkeeper, I think he's just okay. And I think we're seeing that now. So his feet are not working very well. The team's not set up well enough. They haven't probably got the players to help him out. We saw it with Claudio Bravo when he first went to Manchester City. Very, very good goalkeeper with his feet. Phil, you know that as well from seeing him play in, in Spain. Very good goalkeeper with his feet, but got found out because technically I think uh, maybe not the best goalkeeper. Um, and also the players around him weren't set up, didn't want the ball. When he tried to play, they overplayed. I think Onana's the same. Um, I actually think Bravo's a better goalkeeper than Onana, let's be honest. So yeah, absolute disaster. It's, it couldn't have got any worse for Onana. He started Old Trafford. And I don't know whether or not he's going to be able to pull himself out of the trouble mm. that he's in. Um, and I think if, if, Ten Hag, if Ten Hag actually loses his job, I think Onana will be finished. Miguel, is that kind of the feeling as well around in the press? Um, and there's a lot of negativity about another anyway. I mean, the one thing I, I think, as regards Ten Hag, is like, it does just feel though they've they've committed so much to Ten Hag. Yeah. I feel like no matter how bad this gets, they might take a different route this time and keep patience. But then, of course, you don't know the reality until like until the results actually happen. Uh, but it's interesting you mentioned Bravo there. So around that time, actually, it was the next season. I remember we, we, there was something at City where we were told that. And I'd be interested in your view on this, Mark, that Guardiola apparently has this theory on goalkeepers that once they make a big mistake in a big game, especially if it's early or if they kind of feel it at a big stadium, especially if it's early in their time in a new club, it's very, it's very difficult to recover because of just how um, you know individualised the situation is. And Bravos, of course, was at Old Trafford. That was his first kind of... He had a kind of an OK start and they played United early on made a big mistake, City won the game, but he was kind of, United targeted him throughout. And of course, it led into a situation where, I mean, as you say, a bit, a bit similar to Onana, his confidence was just shot for some time until eventually they just replaced him with Edison. But is, is, that, is that, would you buy into that theory or how, how do you see it? it? Look, there's merit in it. And who, who am I to argue with Pep Guardiola <laughs> as a manager and the experience that he's got and, and, and the various teams he's managed and goalkeepers? Yeah, he never course. played in goal in the Premier League, though, did he, Mark? Pep? He didn't. No, he you're didn't. Right, no. He didn't. So maybe, no, you are more, uh, maybe you're more you're well placed to answer this, yeah? Well, all I can say is from my own experience, when you make a mistake at a game, um, and certainly early on, it does put a lot more pressure on you. That's not to say you can't recover. And that the way you recover is by having the faith and the trust from the manager. Um, I think also uh, in the case of Claudio Bravo, um, even now with Onana, they're so specific, a goalkeeper. They're not an all-rounded goalkeeper. They're very, very good with their feet. They're a, they're a ball-playing, outfield player in goal. 
So so it's a very different goalkeeper that, that, that he has. And I think the problem is because they're so specialised and if the team's not set up properly, if the team aren't capable of playing out like those goalkeepers are used to playing out, then I think it's a really tough one to recover from. Because I, I just don't see how they're going to get back into the game. I don't see how they're going to gain confidence. Because you gain confidence by playing games, keeping clean sheets, playing to your strengths, playing to the basics, and then playing to your strengths. And I can't see Man United doing that because they just don't have the players to play out at the back. And Anana's biggest strength is that. Just, to, I mean, what I think he's had at least, I, I, I haven't added to my figures from the weekend, but I think already in, in 10 games before the weekend, it was seven different defences. Um, and I, um, which kind of someone said to me, like the which means, which means he's got to play long a lot, which kind of de- totally defeats why they signed him in the first place. And another point that was made to me during the week, because I had to do big kind of Man United inquest after Galatasaray, was that they made a mistake also, almost leaving the Onana signing so late, because uh, someone said to me that that's because of the specificities of that position now, exactly as you mentioned, pl- playing out from the back, needing to develop chemistry with a proper defence. Uh, they should have signed him first of June, and they're, they're kind of still playing catch up a little bit. I was interested to hear Miguel that you were echoing the sentiments that I, I was saying on on last week's podcast when we were talking about Ten Hag and is his time up and could this be the end for him? And I was saying what you were saying. I think they've invested too much uh, in him to let him go at the moment. Having said having said that, um, had they lost to Brentford at the weekend, there might have been a groundswell of support for him not staying there I mean you're you're in you're in the UK you cover United a lot is there a groundswell of support for him for him leave do you does the average Manchester United fan there think that it's time for him to go and someone else to come in irrespective of this late win against Brentford I I don't think it's got to that level yet from what I can I mean it must be said whereas up until April I think a lot of United fans were fully in with the phrase you kept hearing was bald as best all of this, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, now there's there's at least more questions. But it's all in the context of two ma- major issues that kind of get more focused. Nothing to do with Tanag. One is obviously the sale process, uh, and two is just the number of injuries he's had. So that's, and from what I've heard as well at the top level of the club, that's the kind of that's the big explanation for it at the moment. It's why there's not real pressure on him because it's just seen in the context of how the mm. season started. Now. I I think even beyond that, there are fair questions. Um, Most expensive squad ever in history, you know, should be able to assimilate some injuries. Yeah, and from what you hear as well, one of the issues to develop this season is that when things go wrong, Ten Hag's response is only ever more discipline, more stick rather than carrot. And apparently that has caused just a little bit of friction in the squad. But then again, I suppose these are the stories... When results are bad, they always come out. If suddenly it turns, it might have uh, might have happened from Saturday, then it gets viewed from a different perspective. But it's at least a potential issue. And I think that, that's why this period is so crucial, because it, it's quite fraught in that it could go for a situation where Ten Hag, he's still relatively insulated from deeper questions, but three or four bad results down the line, and that completely changes. Then you get into questions of whether this connection he had with the squad is broken. You, I mean, you can't, as a manager, you can't continuously criticise your players, no matter how bad the results are, right? So you, you've got to go along a path of, yes, there's got to be accountability. The accountability, first and foremost, starts within that change room where the manager has those conversations and outwardly there has to be a backing. And I, I, I've certainly not seen it with... Well, I, I think what you see with Ten Hag is, you know the players that he backs, he's brought in, they're the ones he gives his support to and won't criticise the ones that he kind of either inherited, uh, no longer wants at the club, they're the ones I feel that he's that he's that he's uh, he's got the ability and, and and does now even more frequently single out. Um, and I, and I think that's where you create the division because there there are the new players, there are the ten hard players, and the old one. I've been in dressing rooms like that, and it and it doesn't go well. And and when things are when you are up against it, what Ten Hag is going to find out, and I'm sure he's had it in the past, is that. You need every player in your squad. Injuries, like you said, changing changing different personnel to try and find the right chemistry. If you have, if you've separated players, if you've created a a, a division, it's so hard to bring them back on board because players don't forget. Well, I was going to ask that, Mark. Actually, I mean, have you ever ex- or experienced something like this, or kind of is there any kind of echoes from your own career where? I mean, so, someone said to me during the week that a massive issue with this United is exactly as you mentioned, where he suddenly got this 
remnant of actually remnants of about four different managers who are still kind of hanging around. And like the contrast is made to say Arteta's Arsenal, where people at Arsenal say the best investment wasn't any player they signed. It was being willing to essentially pay off Aubameyang and Ozil to basically kind of just write off their contracts, despite the fact they were so expensive. And because that helped create, like it ensured there was no one hanging around the club. They just didn't fully buy in. And obviously this isn't say any of these lads left are bad pros or anything, but if they're in a situation where they're just, they know they're not wanted, it just kind of saps that potential focus. Would you buy into that at all? Uh, it's it's uh, based on an individual. It really depends on the personality. What sort of influence those players have in the change room? Um, what sort of uh, uh, atmosphere they create? And uh, are they detrimental to the all-round harmony of the squad? And I think that's the key, right? So I also think in that instance with Ozil and Aubameyang, for example, I think Arteta gave them a chance. Mm. But they, they, again, I think very quickly established, right, I mean, they haven't done all that period of time under any other manager while they do it to me, but I'm going to give them that chance. And then they still can't produce and they still don't toe the line to as in the new, the new line. And therefore, that's when they make that decision. I just find it very difficult. Like if you take the example of Jaden Sancho and if he's, and we're talking hypothetically because I don't know, but if he is the problem player that, that they're all saying or supposedly being portrayed how do you write that sort of money off? You've only just bought him a, uh, a couple of seasons ago. I just don't think that's something that, certainly from a financial model, um, that is viable. I think I think the very, very best managers manage their squad really well. And you'll always have managers who will ostracize players, push them aside. But in general, the really good managers, they manage their squad and they know the players they want to keep and they know the players they want to get out. And more often than not, the plays you want to get out, the way you get them out is by playing them because they play well enough and you get the best out of them as you possibly can and then you ship them as, as soon as you possibly can. And I've had managers in the past that did that. Roy Hodgson did that really well. So I, I think I think that's key and I don't see that at Manchester United. I just see Ten Hag going, no, nah, they're not mine. I don't want them pushes them off to the side and then off he goes and tries to deal with the players he's got. Then he gets injuries and he's got players not performing well. He's had off, other off-field in, uh, in, uh, incidents that have hampered him and I don't see a way forward any further with him. I mean, what I'm going to go on to now, the one player that I think, well, other than, other than Harry Maguire in terms of the circumstances with uh, Ten Hag and, and the way the last 12 months has been for him, particularly under this manager, Scott McTominay. Who thought that Scott McTominay would be the hero? And is he one of the most misunderstood players in the Premier League, uh, Miguel? It does feel like that. And I suppose, yeah, because remember the way he came in, where suddenly it was, Mourinho was having issues with Pogba, and suddenly McTominay was brought in. And it was almost like, at the time, it felt like he was sort of this proxy for a classic Mourinho move of almost kind of putting everything on a kid because as this kind of you know, a wild card that was to make a point to a bigger player. And maybe that coloured perception. Um, but actually, I, I do think, I mean, McTominay's clearly, since then, he's been a dependable uh, servant for United. Uh, if maybe there are questions over, like, whether he's quite that absolute top level that they need. But then again, I mean, I suppose in modern football, I mean, it's the kind of the tactical framework that amplifies so much. But um, I, I do think he's in a kind of an, an unfortunate situation. And this speaks to kind of bigger debates in the game over whether now that financial fair play is basically kind of conditioned a situation where if a decision comes down to whether you sell a player you've bought or a player that's homegrown, it's a player that's homegrown that now misses out because that's pure profit in the books, uh, which is kind of one of these unfortunate, unintended consequences of, um, of, of, of the modern rules. Uh, and it, so essentially it made McTominay more dispensable in the summer. Now, in the, in the end... United couldn't sell him because they set their price too high. West Ham did really want him. Um, but then when the price is so high, West Ham just went a different direction. Then from what I'm told, I think that United again tried to kind of shift both him and Maguire on the last day of the window. But West Ham had already done their business. They didn't find too many, too many other potential buyers because of the price United had set. And yeah, maybe again, that comes down to perception. But like I mean... In another era, you, you could easily imagine McTominay as someone who, say, plays 25 games a season for, for Alex Ferguson. Uh, one of those really good squad players that fills in a lot of roles and you just know exactly what you're getting. And then also, this is one of the striking things about McTominay, as Saturday proved, 
he's actually there's usually about four or five games a season where he is a real difference maker and gets some big goals. I mean, I actually remember just before um, the the original COVID lockdown again, which feels as we were saying earlier a different universe now. But he he got that massive goal against Man City to to win the game for Solskjaer. Absolutely. I mean, look, he's leading goal scorer uh, in the Euro qualifiers playing for Scotland. Um, I mean. He's a, he's a player that knows Manchester United, knows the culture, and he was reminded the other day exactly what it means to play for Manchester United. And this is what he had to say after the winning match-winning effort uh, over the weekend. For me, this football club is, has been everything. And I was watching David Beckham's documentary last night and things like that inspire and the real culture about Man United and what it means to the fans and the people who work here, cafe on reception, people like that. That's what, it, that's what we do it for and that's what it means the most too. So... Yeah, I mean, obviously really pleased, but I think it's now the team needs to kick on. There's a danger of living in the past, right? So there's a danger of going under Sir Alex Ferguson. This is what happens at Man United all the time. It happened at Arsenal for a long period of time uh, after Wenger left. Are United still in that conundrum where they still refer to back the DNA of what it was like under, under Sir Alex Ferguson and what it meant to play for Manchester United? Yeah, it still feels like that. Um, and to a certain degree, it's maybe inevitable, maybe not a decade on, but then that, that potentially speaks to kind of just the immense psychological effect of Ferguson. I mean, the fact he created the modern club, there's always got to be an, um, a, a kind of an adjustment period anyway. And, and who knows? I mean, it might even be a question that I think precisely because United are so wealthy, but in the context of, of the owners, that that's actually created a bit of a problem in itself because I mean, that level of wealth, while it's they've obviously spent a lot of money but spent it relatively badly or inefficiently, it does insulate you from true failure. Now United, I know you really, I know United fans might dispute that, given they haven't won a title in ten years, they haven't really been close, not that many trophies, but it, it does just mean United are never going to drop below what sixth in the league or whatever. They're always we, we don't really see that, and sometimes you it, it does need to you know really go to the depths. For the, to create that kind of political will within a club to actually properly change things. And I can be, it's funny, I've been kind of sp- like Chelsea. speaking to people. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been Chelsea, a, a different case in that regard. But, um, but even kind of like speaking to people who work within these areas, particularly as regards kind of who've been involved, obviously, in takeovers and new structures, their argument is always you've actually you've got to make a complete break from the past actually for a while and this is something that Arsenal did again get rid of a kind of former players hanging around with influence because it just created what well people talk about traditions and all that those traditions as well can become something that kind of even on a subconscious level I think kind of um weigh clubs down because always a hack and you've got to it can prevent it can prevent modernization in a way uh, and like it, it, it almost feels like United have gone halfway there and what they tried to do with Ten Hag. But, I mean, and this was something that was raised when Ten Hag came in, actually, that he's used to the, the, the Ajax structure, which is very different to the Man United structure. And maybe we're seeing th- those gaps now. But then, of course, Ajax has their own similar problems at the moment. Well, Ajax, Ajax, obviously, that's been built up from the ground from day one, right? Structure all the way through the club, from the juniors all the way to the seniors, like a Barcelona. That I mean, that's a very different structure. And that's the challenge, right? He feels he probably has to build everything the club from all the way down the bottom all the way up into the first team the first team is obviously in a bit of chaos but look we're going to move on we're going to talk about um, of course Tottenham and yes. uh, Postacoglu because it yes. wouldn't be a podcast of Optus Sport if we don't talk about <laughs> Postacoglu and how well Tottenham are doing Phil Spurs' best ever Premier League start 20 points from 24 available mate this is, this is like this is bigger than Girona <laughs> um, is is it bigger than Girona? I don't know. Girona are second in La Liga still, but anyway, we'll get on to them in a. We'll get on to them in a Spurs moment. Spurs are top. Come on, Spurs are top of the Premier League. And last time they had this good a start was 1960-1961 when they went and won the double. Obviously, I wasn't around then, but I heard all about it from uh, from my dad. And uh, yeah. Getting excited, man. Getting excited, and we should. Like, Spurs aren't probably going to win the league, but there's no reason why y- you can't get excited watching what is going on at this at this club. Miguel, you probably know, regular listeners will know, I am a Spurs fan who was a little bit disillusioned with the club last season and wasn't watching maybe as many Spurs games as I had in the past. But this this team is, has got me involved again. Um for many reasons, not just because Angus is, is so likeable and, and comes across as such a decent human being. He's got a really, really good idea of what he wants from his players. And uh, the strategy in the summer, we're seeing 
how well Spurs did in the transfer market bringing in these players that have made such a difference in this system that Ange Postacoglu has got the, got the side playing. I mean, we said a couple of weeks ago, I suggested James Madison was the signing of the season and it might have elicited one or two wry smiles, but I think he is making a really good case in terms of uh, quality and, and, and cost and his assist uh, against Luton was just magnificent. It wasn't the best game in terms of visceral enjoyment that we've seen from Spurs in terms of other matches. Um, but there are loads of positives to take from this game for, for Spurs, not least the, the mental aspect of missing three really clear chances in the opening seven minutes. Like I don't remember a team creating three such clear chances in the opening six or seven minutes of a game, uh, going a man down. And the old Spurs would not have won this game, genuinely. This, I've, I've seen Spurs for 30-odd years. I've been watching them. This is a game that they did not win in the past, but, but they found a way. They found a way through Madison's quality setting up the goal and... Um, yeah, top of the league, mate. Phil, so I want to ask you, as that Spurs fan, that diehard Spurs fan, I hasn't seen this for a long, long time. Actually, you've never seen this start before. Um, what was the one thing that impressed you the most? You mentioned there that Luton game wasn't the best game in the world, but what impressed you the most about that performance? Yeah, that, that, what, like I said, listen, they started really well and, you know, creating those chances in, in the opening six or seven minutes. Yeah, they were all missed, but to be to be creating those chances, that is positive. But then, like I said, the old Spurs, they, there was not a mental strength in the old Spurs. And to, to come back, OK, they were playing Luton, you know, small team, bottom team. At, you know, uh, it, it's not the most challenging game that they've had. But um, to, 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 to come back from the, the blow of missing those really clear chances of going a man down as well. It feels like everything is going against you. You come in at the halftime, you regroup, and you come out really strong. They came out strong in the second half with 10 men. Um, and Madison, Madison setting up that, 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 that brilliant goal for Van der Ven. So, yeah, I mean, just the mental aspect of this, of this performance was really, really impressive. And I think that's probably what, what made Ange um, really, really happy. Miguel, I want to ask you, I'm going to put you on the spot. Were you one of those journos when Ange Postacoglu was appointed manager of Spurs... What was your initial thought? Were you one of those people that were like thinking this is not going to work? What, what did you think? I, I was not, and I have proof of this because uh, it was back in May. Because I, I, I broke the story after I maybe bumped my own guns there that Spurs he was he had become Spurs' top choice, and I do remember when I put it up on social media, there was a lot of resistance from Spurs fans, uh, and I ra- I actually raised this on Saturday to a little bit of backlash from Spurs fans. <laughs> then, oh no, it was never that bad. But I, I, I do remember, I, I defended him at the time. Cause I, I, even then, I thought he did, he's a really kind of progressive coach, someone, you know, someone who's, who's a good side. Because I remember the similar reaction from Celtic fans. Now, I have to say, I didn't expect it to be this much of an impact um, so, so far. Uh, and I, and I, we've all got these expectations that eventually they'll kind of, things will level out and that. But it's obviously going ahead of schedule. Things are looking good. And I, I think there's two interesting lessons here. Um, one is how important it is that above anything else, a manager fits with kind of where a club is in terms of kind of, I mean, look, Spurs, they're one of the kind of the recent big six, but they've always been the financially weakest of those. They were considered kind of lucky to get into the Super League, uh, which kind of said a lot about kind of where things were. Um, so they're, they're, they, they, it's no coincidence they've done their best when it's a manager who's on his way up, say, or has that kind of profile rather than some big name who feels he's doing him a favour to be there, as we've seen with Conte and Mourinho. So Ange fits that from one perspective. The other, I suppose, is kind of the, the lesson in all this is how much the kind of proper perception and insight in football matter. I mean, not, not just Postacoglu, but say yeah, Destiny Adogi, uh, Van de Ven. These, these are signings that, like, when they were made, okay, even if people said they were promising, they didn't exactly kind of move the needle. But they're players who fit, they're promising, and, and, and it, it does... Now, Spurs themselves, as we've said, because of, you know, appointments like Mourinho, like Conte, and some of the signings they made around then as well, they belatedly learned themselves. But when you've got a, a fully unified team like that, and a team, and this kind of, again, it's almost a, a, a reflection of what's wrong at Man United. When everyone fits into a vision, when everyone's looking the same way, it just makes a huge difference. And then it's gone Postacoglu as much almost by his demeanour as well as his excellent management, he's changed the whole outlook of the squad. And it's funny, like, I mean, while it's easy to get to fixate his personality in the way that has happened in England, it does feel like it's actually been influential, especially because of how 
well, like normally seems compared to kind of the modern trend of these hyper-focused, hyper-intense managers. Yeah, look, how dare he come in and manage a team and manage a squad <laughs> properly and actually coach players and get them playing good football. That just doesn't happen, surely. Um, but no, obviously, Andrew's doing a phenomenal job and let it continue for as long as possible. Just might add as well that... Uh, no team who started twenty or got on twenty points after eight games has ever finished lower than third. And I'll of take the ten that. Uh, to to have done it before, five have actually gone on to win the title. Right, so let's not get too carried away just yet. Um, but what a start it's been for for Spurs. I was going to ask you this, Phil. I was thinking about this when I was coming away from the from the Liverpool game last week, and this is it's maybe kind of underappreciated, but it's so important in football. Is this the happiest Spurs fans have been since, I would say, 2017? Because even even when they got to the Champions League final of Pochettino, it was kind of like they were there. There was that sense. It was kind of like, I, I don't think a, a team is ever happier as when, or fact, when they're on the way up because everything's possible then. Yeah, we were pretty happy when we got to the Champions League final, not going to lie. That was, that, but that, was, that was the peak, I would say. That was the peak. And, and yeah, when, when Pochettino was sacked and Mourinho was brought in, that was just a, just a massive emotional blow to a lot of Spurs fans. And that was the moment where I might have fallen out of love a little bit with what was going on behind the scenes. But you're right. We were talking about this last week. Football is about entertainment. We watch football because we love football. We want to be entertained. And it's about happiness and joy and the joy that your team can bring you um, when they when they win and when they're playing good and and, and it, it is uh something that perhaps we don't talk enough about how happy fans can be and, and how happy a team can make fans and at the moment there is just an overwhelming sense of good vibes happiness and enjoyment around uh, spurs fans well last we know that it's football with spurs fans <laughs> we've seen the, the highs and the lows it, it, it won't last but at the moment enjoy it enjoy it everyone and i think we are are you Spurs fans even thinking that maybe Daniel Levy has done something really good for the club? <laughs> like, seriously, like, am I allowed to say that or am I going to get absolutely crucified saying yeah, that Daniel I mean, Levy you know. has done something positive? Yeah, let's not get too carried away, you know. I mean, there was, no, but I, I was not massively on the Enoch out um, uh, bandwagon, so you know, I'm I'm not uh, too uh, too involved in too involved in that. But it was it was the right choice after some really poor choices in the past and some really poor signings. They've got it right this summer, and it was about time that they got it right, and they and they have. So at the moment. Daniel Levy is obviously delighted because that has quelled the growing, growing feeling among Spurs fans that he needed to go. So at the moment, it's all good. And we're a quarter of the way through the season. You know, it's not a, it's not a huge amount. There's still a long way to go. But we're basically a quarter of the way through and Spurs top. I don't remember the last time we've said that. But yeah, well done to Spurs and let, let it continue as long as possible. Miguel, you were at the big game on the weekend, Arsenal against uh, Manchester City. It's the first time City have lost back-to-back Premier League games in five years. And I might add, um, the last time they did that, they went on to win the next 19, <laughs> 19 of the next 20 games. Um, is that possible again for this Man City side? Or do you see well, I think maybe cru- cracks appearing or something a little bit different this time around? Well, I think crucial to that uh, is Rodri will be back because they've lost all three games without him which shows how important he's going. Now, to be fair, it's important in a bigger context as well, because if you think about it, the midfield that was there to win the treble, it's been completely absent. So Rodri's been suspended, Gundogan's been sold, De Bruyne has been injured. So that's obviously had a big effect. Uh, I wonder as well, maybe, I mean, for, for all, you know, as, as powerful and as ominous for everyone else as big city machine is, success in itself, I suppose, has an effect and there's probably an inevitable, just an emotional hangover over what they did last season. And not that it creates complacency, but it's possibly just understandable that the level for a while isn't quite as good. But that said, I mean, for, for all yeah, we're repeating these stats, I, I think it'd be very, very dangerous for anyone else to think that City can't just go on the sort of run they did last season. Even like, it's been interesting, actually, suddenly, for the first time since January, people have been talking about Erling Haaland and how many, how many times he touches the ball again. Um, I, I, I do think it's just circumstantial but the other side of it is I think the Premier League does need this it needs a properly open title race because of the way City won it last season and that's maybe the kind of biggest effect of um, of Sunday's result and maybe the, the whole weekend that we need to see City as vulnerable and at the moment as we say it's very tight at the top you know, it's early in the season but if, it's, if, if it was kind of um, 
you know, a title race involving three or four clubs. That, that's what the Premier League needs a little bit. Now, it, it very rarely develops into that situation, but right now it looks promising. But I think out of, out of all of them, Arsenal, even by virtue of, of that win on Sunday, I think it was so psychologically significant. I, mean, I don't know if you've been in that situation before, Mark, where a team that you, you haven't beaten in so long, and he, 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 the win finally comes, and, wh- and what it does and the effect of it. I wanted to ask you, Miguel, do you feel this season is potentially that season where last season Arsenal ran them quite close for, for a considerable amount of time, but then City just put the foot down a little bit and then took off? Do you think this season is maybe a little bit different? Maybe? You, you, could, you could feel it a little bit around Arsenal yesterday, I have to say. I mean, because what, what happened last season, they almost kind of... Not that they surprised themselves, but certainly they overperformed, especially for so long. But then, I mean, to my mind, what happened last season, and again, when I suppose it comes from kind of speaking to people around the club as well, they got into a situation where they obviously started really well. The first 11 worked, worked exceptionally. But then by around March, April, Arteta got into a little bit of a bind in that he keep playing the first 11 because it was working so well, but that threatened fatigue. Or he could change the first 11 and kind of change what made them good. And in the end, but both had kind of a bit of a cost to them. In the end, it felt like he kind of tried to do both. I think they inevitably just petered out. Whereas the, some of the start of this season, and even and signings like Havertz, who had a really, that, that felt like his first big Arsenal moment yesterday, kind of the, the presence of mind to set up Martinelli. Um, but it's been about kind of giving the team more tactical variety, so not as dependent on one first eleven. And also, I think that they, they do feel they're kind of there after last season. And now it's about going, in fact, really, it's about taking all these little steps until they're ready to win a title. And I suppose that was, that was why yesterday was crucial as well. It was one more step along that. It wasn't a great game, was it, Miguel? No, no, it was, it was not. Uh, in fact, I have to say, up until that goal, uh, my, my report featured, uh, my live report featured a lot of words like one of, those, one of those moments where you feel like a top two clash has come way too early in the season. <laughs> or an inevitable nil all. I was disappointed. I mean, you know, I built it up. It, do you know what? Here in Spain, they they get quite excited about Arsenal, Man City now. Um, two Spanish managers, obviously. And in uh, in Marca, the uh, leading sports paper here, the headline they did a whole full page preview of this game. They called it El Nuevo Clásico, the new Clásico, Arsenal, yeah. Manchester City. Um, getting maybe a little bit carried away, but I sat down. I was really excited to watch this. Got my boys sitting with me. I thought we're going to watch this game. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> and it really, really, really was underwhelming. Because they cancelled each other out and um, uh, particularly disappointed with Manchester City and uh, we were on Haaland watch with my boy and um, it's fair to say that he didn't have the biggest impact I mean he's still a top scorer in the Premier League right I mean you look at the you look at the stats and he's still got eight goals he's still got two more goals than anybody else but yesterday that kind of performance is again as Miguel said the kind of performance that has people checking for the uh, touches per game stats because he, he really wasn't involved at all. Would you just on that Phil I mean how do they view him in Spain uh, and actually, I'd be curious in Mark's opinion this as well. Having faced the kind of you know some of the great strikers, how do they view him in Spain as actually as a pure footballer? Because there's, there's almost that sense with Haaland sometimes is that, and I don't I don't mean to sound wrong that he's not actually a footballer. He's just a pure finisher. They, that, I think. That's, 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 I think they don't actually view him as a footballer. They view him as like a machine. He is just genuinely yeah. like the whole aura around him when people talk about Haaland is like a robot. He's like this huge, um, almost like a Terminator, goal-scoring Terminator. Uh, and that's the, the language that's used around him. That's the discourse around him. Is like he's not, uh, the, he's not Mbappe. Mbappe is much more of a footballer. Haaland is just someone who is going to come here and score an unbelievable amount of goals. I say come here because he was obviously linked with Real Madrid and those links won't go away ever because they sell newspapers. But... Um, yeah, the, the view of him is that he is he is just this machine who will always score goals. Didn't yesterday? I, I I'm trying to think about players in the past. You mentioned there, like I, I played against some really big name players in the Premier League and, and international football, and I can't actually think of a player that I can really compare him with. <laughs> um, and 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 that's the hard thing. I mean, because he's got that element of just an out and out goal scorer, but he's quick. He's strong. Um, I mean, Shearer was a great out-and-out goal scorer. He was strong, but not the same. You know, just different. Henri, obviously, is a very different player. There was there was no one. Van Nistelrooy was a purely finisher, right? But he was a bit gangly, a little bit scraggly, you know, a bit scruffy maybe in the way he played, I think, probably, without 
trying to be you know I'm not trying to be uh, uh, detrimental towards him because he's a phenomenal player. So I, I I think it's really difficult to compare him. But I obviously you know as, as numbers don't lie first and foremost scoring goals don't lie the physical ability physical presence uh, his ability on the ball obviously is where it is because of how how a phenomenal player he is. What I want to see though is. I want to see him do it at an international level. I just don't know whether we'll ever see him at a World Cup really, really having an opportunity. Like, it's a bit like Poland and, and Robert Lewandowski, you know? It's it's that carrying a nation. Can he take them further? We've seen individual players carry nations before in Cristiano Ronaldo, whether it's Messi and so forth, and over the years, many, many more. But will a striker of that ability, that type, even though Lewandowski's a different type of player, he's not able to do it with Poland, but then you might argue, right, Miguel, would you argue and say that Poland get to where they get to? They get to World Cups because of Lewandowski, because he is so good? Yeah, I think it's about, I mean, I mean look, it's interesting, actually, well, Norway plays Spain on Sunday, a game I'm actually at in Oslo. And, be, and I, I maybe feel I can personally come to this from two perspectives. On one side, I've got Spain. On the other side, as you can tell from the, the accent and the surname, Ireland. And Ireland had a similar dynamic with this. If maybe not quite well. We had Robbie Keane for years who got so many goals for us. And I think really was crucial to get us to the playoff in 2010. But before that, the, the massive dependency was on Roy Keane. And there's always this weird dynamic then where kind of it's a, a, a player dropped into a situation where he's clearly you know, better, like, better than the context he's in. And it, there's always this weird kind of debate about that because they, they, they clearly lift the team they're, they're in. But then there's always this strange, and I've seen this so many times with players like this, where should they be doing more? Do they really do it for their country? And obviously the kind of, um, the, the, the level of the players around them just influences that. Um, and again, it's amazing, even Norway, they, they've got themselves into a little bit of trouble. I mean, because the, the Euros, not that it's quite a gimme, but it's 24 teams, it's almost half of Europe that qualifies. Uh, they're maybe a little bit unfortunate that Scotland have suddenly been on this rise um, in their group, but given they've got Haaland and Odegaard, you would expect a bit more. And Sunday's game is actually huge. But yeah, there's, I mean, maybe actually part of that is also, because as you said, Lewandowski's a player, or he's sort of striker that can kind of, okay, not so much recently at Barcelona, because he's a bit more physically limited now, but there was more range to his game that could kind of drive, whereas Haaland is so dependent on service, I think, especially given we talk about how, how little he touches the football um, that, is that an issue at Norway? Uh, we probably see it a bit more, but certainly until they qualify, it's going to be a debate. You wouldn't think it would be an issue with Odegaard behind him, right? You, yeah, you wouldn't yeah, yeah. think. And I'm not saying, you know, the the, the rest of the Norway, Norway side is, 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 you know, they're no slouches, right? It's just for some reason that combination is not as effective, right? They're no slouches. You know, if you look, if you look at the team, it's got some top players from around Europe. Um, Nyland's in goal. He's the current Sevilla goalkeeper. You've yep. got Ostegaard who yep. plays for, for Napoli. We've got uh, Alexander Sordolot who plays for Villarreal up front, scored loads of goals for, for Real Sociedad last season. They've got Strand Larsen who's a good striker, plays for Celta Vigo. Um, they're, 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 a good, they're a good players here, but obviously no one is the all-conquering goal-scoring machine that, that Erling Haaland is, but we're not talking about some, um, some minnows or some part-timers. This is a decent side that should definitely be at the Euros and then when they get to the Euros, because they really, really should be there, um, it will be very interesting to see how Haaland gets on and how far he can take them. Well, let's move on to the WSL. Uh, it was a full weekend of fixtures. And joining us is Ash Sykes and Narelle Sindos to give us their rundown on the weekend's uh, events. Thanks, Schwarzer. Yeah, well, finally, Arsenal picked up their first point of the season and didn't they need the Ash? Yeah, they definitely did. They'd be having, you know, high expectations for themselves, especially now, like they're out of Champions League as well. So, you know, they'll be hoping to get a little bit more out of this season, I think. Yeah, they drew 2 all with Manchester United, but another bright spot, Steph Catley with an assist. Steph Catley with an assist and it was a great ball in behind. And, you know, the, the crazy thing was that Jonas Eidevall made six changes for Arsenal. Do you think he's sort of still tinkering with his formation? Yeah, and I think he's probably just giving players a rest because it is a long season. But one of those changes, though, didn't work out for the best, that goalkeeping blunder. Yeah, it appears to be like one of their biggest problems at the moment, isn't it? That goalkeeping spot. D'Angelo came in for Zinsberger. They also had some issues. You know, they've made a lot of signings over the summer. They're still trying to work out their best lineup. And I think the goalkeeper is the biggest spot that they need to figure out. 2-2, fair result. Yeah, probably in the end. I think Arsenal probably dominated the play and, and Man United's goals were a little bit lucky. Well, by far the biggest talking point out of the Women's Super League from the weekend has to be 
involving Manchester City in two red cards and in controversial fashion. What was the referee thinking? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know about you, but I'd probably expect the referee to do a little bit more like game management before she progresses to just handing out yellow cards willy-nilly. Like, when you're playing, you've sort of experienced referees managing you, you know, calm down or don't talk to me like that. Next one's going to be a yellow card, those sorts of things before... You know, she just seemed like she was keen to just start handing out yellow cards as her main sort of weapon. Yeah, because their skipper Alex Greenwood got a second yellow in the first half for time wasting. 26 seconds it took her to take that free kick, but that's a little bit ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And this is Man City. They're not like time wasting at the 38th minute, even though they are playing Chelsea. Like it seemed if you have a little bit of understanding of how the game works, you'd know that, you know, that wasn't what was happening in that occasion. The second one for Hemp though is another two yellow cards, but the first one was for descent. Yeah, the first one was for descent. And this is where, you know, I'm not gonna blame the referee completely, even though I think she was a bit heavy handed. If you know the referee's handing out yellow cards willy-nilly and some for dissent earlier in the game, you probably should keep your mouth shut a little bit That's more. That's true, yeah. <laughs> so Hemp probably got a little bit carried away with that first yellow card and doesn't leave herself any room for error with that second one where she pulls uh, Lauren James down. So 1-1 one, one that finished and Chelsea, uh, we finally saw Sam Kerr feature for them and she almost popped up with the winner. Yeah, she did. She came on. It's great to see her back there and hopefully she keeps building you know, game time for them um, in the coming weeks because she's you know, a key part of their squad. I do think Chelsea probably would have wanted more out of that game, don't you think? I think so, but you could talk about that for hours, though, Kanyash. You could. <laughs> We're not going to, though. What did you guys make of that? Yeah, girls, look, I have to agree. I can't believe the decision from the referee. The referee needed to manage the game better. Uh, what, first, first half of the game, 20-odd uh, minutes into the game. I mean, it's 26 seconds Alex Greenwood took to take the free kick. Um, but in that instance, the referee has to use a bit more common sense. I think the referee needs to go over to, to Alex Greenwood and say to her, look, you're on a yellow card. I'm not going to warn you again. You've got to quicken it up, Not rather than going just pulling out a, a yellow card and giving her a second yellow. I think it was absolutely crazy. But on we go. La Liga, Phil, it's your domain. Seville, what is going on in Seville uh, over the weekend? Uh, what's happened is that Sevilla have uh, sacked their manager, Jose Luis Mendeliba, the same Jose Luis Mendeliba uh, that they appointed at the end of March uh, to save them from relegation. He saved them from relegation, took them to the Europa League uh, final. They beat Manchester United, Juventus and then Roma, uh, lifted the uh, trophy for the seventh time. And then two months into the season, they've, they've sacked him. They've got eight points from their uh, opening tw possible 24 uh, they drew 2-2 on Saturday against uh, Raya Vallecano at home, my boys. They scored in the 97th minute as well to to salvage a point, but it wasn't enough. And it looked like the writing was on the wall. Uh, some of the senior players, the way that he's handled some of the senior players, they've not been particularly happy with. Mendeliba, who is this no-nonsense, hard-talking grafter, kind of old-school manager who has worked his way up. His previous jobs were Osasuna, Alaves, Levante, Valladolid. They were unfashionable lower echelon La Liga sides. He got this chance to manage one of the biggest clubs in the country. It was only supposed to be until the end of the season, and he only got the job because they won the Europa League and then there was this massive groundswell of support not just from Sevilla fans but basically everybody in Spain was like oh this is such a great story he's got to get the job and he got it but that hasn't really translated into success this season they're only two points above the relegation zone like I said he's a he's a no-nonsense tough talking manager and I think the way he's handled some of the uh, bigger personalities in the dressing room hasn't gone down particularly well it was quite telling when they signed Sergio Ramos the prodigal son returning and he said yeah you know we we need to uh, we need to get him to change the way he plays a little bit because he wants to play out from the back and you know we're not doing that you know telling four times Champions League winner Sergio Ramos and the World Cup winner to uh, to change the way he plays um, he substituted Fernando the midfield linchpin uh, at the weekend after the 35th minute and Fernando, one of the veterans, one of the big names in the dressing room, walked off shaking his finger uh, and shaking his head, wagging his finger at the coach, showing public displeasure and uh, lack of respect. And when things like that are happening, you know that the dressing room isn't particularly happy. So he's gone. And the, whoever comes in at the time of recording, there is no manager at the moment for Sevilla. It's going to be the fourth coach in a year. Uh, it's been a very, very, very chaotic period uh, for Sevilla. And as Ivan Rakitic put it, 
after the game against Rayo Vallecano, I can't believe we're here again. Because it's almost exactly how they started last season when they sacked Julio Lopetegui, brought in Sampaoli. That didn't work. Brought in Mendeleeva and they won the Europa League. So we know what's going to happen uh, at the end of this season, right? They're going <laughs> to drop into the Europa League and they're going to win it with another manager. It, it's the Sevilla Europa League, by the way. It's not anyone else's. Sorry, yes. Uh, yeah. Technical League. name. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, who, who, are the, who are the front runners? Anyone early, early front runner for the job? No, I mean, uh, there's always talk about uh, Marcelo Gallardo, the, um, the River Plate uh, boss, former River Plate boss, but it looks like he isn't coming. Someone suggested that Julio Lopetegui might come back. That's not going to happen. So, uh, yeah, watch this space. Uh, Marcelino Garcia Torral is a, a manager who's been out of work for a while. He's previously been at Sevilla and been linked with them as well well former Villarreal coach so um so let's see but at the moment um no time of uh, at the time of recording uh, no official uh no official uh, appointment but I know uh, Miguel's got his head to the ground on these kind of matters just, just on Gallardo um because I've heard this a few times now that apparently he and his staff he's been in the running for a few European jobs but he and his staff are massively expensive yeah um <laughs> and I do, there's a bit of a disconnect there I wonder between what he feels he's done in South America with repeat Libertadores and how that is seen in European football now, which again, and there might be a snobbiness about it, but I suppose it's a, it's a current reality. But you just, I wonder, Phil, on that perspective, because there's something that struck me about a few clubs like Sevilla, and it's happened to Dortmund to a degree as well. These kind of model clubs for a while, it, it, does all, it always feels like it, it comes that point where it suddenly just tail spins because it's very difficult in modern football to just keep getting those decisions right. Uh, and suddenly, they, they very quickly, it feels like they go against what made them, what, what, what made them so successful. And you can, even in the way you're talking about the kind of Sevilla squad there and some of the names you're mentioning, it, it feels like they, and I know Monchi's gone, although even it felt like the game might be moving beyond Monchi a little bit, if that's not too harsh to say. But suddenly they're going from players that would previously have been, uh, you know, of the sort you can sell on, which has been how, what sustained the club, to now suddenly kind of big names at the other end of their career. Um, yeah, uh, they, 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 they've brought in some players uh, in the summer which have been kind of uh, Sevilla-esque uh, signings. Uh, Dodi Lukabakio came in, Belgian uh, player who I hadn't heard too much of, but he's come in and made a, made a real difference. Uh, Gibril Sow's come into the um, heart of the midfield as well and, and, and been good. So Victor Orta, the man who replaced Monchi, Almost an impossible job to replace someone like Monchi uh, has come in and seems to have made some, some interesting signings. Um, but it's, 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 hard. it's hard to work at Sevilla because of what's going on off the pitch as well. There is an in, a civil war in terms of uh, the, uh, the presidency. Um, it's, um, we don't have time to get into it, but it's a very complex situation about who is going to be the, uh, uh, the president and the elections. And it's, uh, it's, it's a very difficult uh, context within to work. So um, that's, been, that's been difficult. And I just think that Mendilibar wasn't the right fit. He was the right man at the right moment when, they, when he was brought in to keep them up. That was his brief, keep us up. Only got a contract until the end of the season. He was never supposed to be in charge at the end of the season. He should have walked off. He should have just done the ultimate mic drop. Europa League, I've won this, bam, I'm gone. And then it would have made for the perfect Netflix series. As it is, it, um, he's ruined it a little bit by uh, this, uh, this sour ending. Like I said before, we can't do an Optosport podcast without talking about Ange Postacoglu in Spurs. And the same goes regarding Jude Bellingham. Miguel, I'm going to start with you first. Cause I know what I know. Phil is in love with Jude Bellingham, right? <laughs> I mean, he just raves about him no end, and it's understandable because the guy is absolutely flying. Um, were, were you kind of surprised at how well he's played that more advanced position, almost that number ten role? At times, he's also been sort of almost deployed as a, a sort of a two strikers. Him and him and uh, one of his teammates like swapping back and forth. Um, are you surprised at the impact he's had at that level? I expect him to be successful, but I think just the extent of it, because he's basically, it feels like he's in, in so quickly made the jump from one of the most promising players in the world to bona fide star right now. And that, that, that is remarkably quick. As you say, it, it feels like for, for all that kind of, it, it, it feels like kind of Madrid are almost waiting for Mbappe now, that he's going to be that star that was supposed to replace Benzema. Actually, Bellingham has replaced Benzema, even in the kind of the space he takes up now. Of course, the interpretations are all a bit different. It's a bit further back, but he's that bit close with the goal. And it's, it's, I mean, I remember actually just before the season began, or actually, sorry, it was a few a few games in, and I was away with England, um, and we, naturally 
his start came up with Southgate. And like at that point, the discussion was, well, it's a bit like Brian Robson and how he arrived late in the box. But it's gone, it's gone beyond that. <laughs> and there's such a range to his game. He's, he's, he's incredible. Now, I have to say, my, my family, is, uh, my Spanish side of the family is from Navarra. So Osasuna are our team. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't that pleasant to watch at the weekend. But, um, but it's just, yeah, it's, we, I mean, we are, and like, even from the perspective, what I really like about that, about this entire move is, especially we're in a world now, kind of the Premier League, because of its financial might, it's become, it's, there's an almost an element of kind of just, not cannibalizing the rest of football, but it's become the main show in town. Well, one of the really refreshing things about Bellingham is he was obviously kind of really transfixed by the very idea of going to Real Madrid, just that kind of playing for a club of that historic stature. And since he's been there, there is that just sense of, of living the dream, being a, a young guy, being a star at what is still the biggest club in the world. He's in the moment, right? He's, he's seizing yeah. the moment right from the minute he's arrived and put on a Real Madrid shirt. Um, I, I just quickly, Miguel, because I'm going to come on to you in a second, Phil, because I know you're dying to talk about Jude Bellingham's impact. But um, you mentioned Gareth Southgate, England. Has he caused a bit of a problem for Gareth? Because Gareth, you know, England have got a lot of attacking players. Do we need, like, do they need another one? And someone like Jude Bellingham, who's in the past played more in a central midfield role and a holding role, which is something England are a bit short on these days because Calvin Phillips not playing every week either. Jordan Henderson's moved on. So is that almost a, a, a problem that he kind of, like, it's a good problem in one way, but a problem he didn't really want to have to deal with, right? Yeah, it is funny in that sense, actually, that he, because up, up until the last month, he had been seen as someone who would solving, who could basically solve England's midfield for the next decade, if not more. Whereas, as you say, now he's had more success in a much more advanced role. I would still say he'd probably, he'd probably play central midfield for England with a license to run. But to be fair, Southgate did mention this the other day, where and he specifically mentioned Bellingham's goals and how they were needed because he said if, if England had a flaw over the past, well, he didn't quite put it like that, but that was kind of the implication. One of England's issues over the past few years has been that too many goals came from. Harry Kane and Sterling, and they could have done with a bit more variety. And Bellingham immediately just adds another dimension there. All right, Phil, it's your moment. Jude Bellingham week. Welcome to the part of the show. Jude Bellingham is very good at football. That's the section. Uh, again, we saw uh, two, two magnificent goals, and this week against Osasuna, he scored two really brilliant individual goals, and a lot of his previous goals have been um, fox in the box, uh, close finishes, rebounds, that kind of thing. Uh, on Saturday against Osasuna, he scored two fantastic goals, brilliant finishes, brilliant team moves as well. The second one, he makes all of his own uh, doing. Midweek, we saw him score an unbelievable goal, like Maradona, in the Diego. Armando Maradona Stadium against uh, Napoli. He has got everything. The most complete footballer around at the moment. And the only place to watch him every week is on uh, Optus Sports. So you lucky guys, you get to see Jude Bellingham every week and, and enjoy the, uh, the Jude Bellingham show. I certainly am. What's the, uh, what's the rollercoaster of emotions like in, in Spain? Madrid in particular. Marca, you mentioned earlier on about it. Last week against Atletico Madrid, questions were asked. He only performs against the, the lesser teams. Now, all of a sudden, he's scored two more goals again. Are they singing his praises and saying he's like the next best thing? Yeah, of course again? they are. Of course they are. You know, there's no, uh, <laughs> it's all up and down here. You know, if you, if you don't play well in one game, you'll be uh, absolutely slaughtered. But if you do continue to play well, then um, uh, you will be praised. And uh, the front page, I think it's marker today. It might be uh, asked the other Madrid-based newspaper, but one of the two papers, the headline is Generation Bellingham. Uh, Bellingham is marking a generation. This is Je Bellingham's era. This is his, uh, his, his epoch. He's made such a huge impact uh, in these opening two months that uh, everybody loves Jude at the moment. Well, that's certainly for, for any podcast listeners who are in Australia and are able to access Optusport. You have to be tuning in to watching Real Madrid play, certainly when Jude Bellingham's on this sort of form. Um, he's a phenomenal player and an unbelievable player to watch at this moment in time. Let's move on to Australia's friendly against England. Um, it, you know, like as, as Aussies playing in this fixture, which I've played before, I've, I've um, you know, I, I know what it means to play against England, right? Miguel, you, obviously your Irish background, Spanish, Irish, you're, in, you're on the ground. You know there's a rivalry, certainly when it comes to cricket and rugby and so forth. I think us Aussies probably have that more rivalry in the football. Um, we feel more of a rivalry. England don't really consider Australia a big rival, right, in football terms. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's interesting because I was at the, uh, the um, Women's World Cup game uh, in Sydney, and, and that was the... 
that was the first time I really felt that this kind of historic sporting rivalry had been moved to football and like you could really feel it on the night with this as you say and I, I think there's another dimension to it now that kind of takes it further and that just from being around England camp obviously the national team I cover most um they the, England's only fixation at the moment is basically finally winning that trophy it, it's kind of beyond gone beyond any rivalry now say. and I probably one of the one of the more progressive things Soke has done has got England kind of away from these kind of old fixations uh, and everything is built towards that. Also, the other side of it is they know they're really good. And I just, I mean, from the Australian perspective, I remember when Ireland played them three years ago, actually, again, it was a lockdown game. And the Irish side had been really built up, finally playing England again. What a massive match for us. And they just didn't care and, <laughs> and swatted Ireland aside. And what I think this Australia should be able to be put up a bit more. Um, there is just that sense, yeah, for England, it's just, it's, you know, a friendly on the road to something much bigger. Uh, much as I mean, that, that might feel disrespectful to some people, but it it is sort of now. Of course, the players will be very respectful as they're talking, and and Southgate will. But the reality for them is they just see this as something one more step on the road to something bigger. And England have become very adept at just kind of motoring through all the. I mean, for even the very fact, and this is actually something else that struck from the Beckham documentary when they showed um, that that draw in Italy in '97. And what an achievement it was for England to qualify for the World Cup. And I know they'd missed out in 94, so that, that informed it. But it, it was a slightly different football world. Whereas now, we're, we're like, I mean, qualification of this Euro is even allowing for its expansion. This is basically settled back in March when they beat Italy away. So it's, uh, it's yeah, England just have a different scope now. It's that path, right? It's almost like a tick box, right? This is another, another game, another tick box to getting to the, the ultimate goal and going to a Euros and winning a trophy, which I'm going to get on to very shortly. Um, any players? I mean, for me, I'm looking forward, to, from the Australian side, um, I'm looking forward to seeing Martin Boyle play. Um, he's coming back from injury. He was a big miss for Australia at the World Cup. As remarkable a job as Australia did at the World Cup, certainly uh, superseded anything I expected. I think certainly from a lot of Australians' perspective, watching the Socceroos going into that World Cup had very little expectation. So I'm really looking forward to seeing Martin Boyle back in the green and gold shirt and doing his thing because he's a little bit off the cuff. He's a little bit uh, rough around the edges and he's a little bit different. So I, I really like that. And also, it's great for me to see Awamabil, uh back in the side. He's moved to Grasshopper Zurich away from Cardiff where it didn't go well at all for him. Um, and now he's getting some some regular game time game time in uh, in Switzerland, and hopefully he will get a chance to to show his stuff against uh, against uh, England. Miguel, is there anyone you are looking forward to seeing from Australia? Um, I was actually I was at the um, both your biggest games of the World Cup actually the uh, the Australia or sorry the the French game and the uh, the Argentina game. And I think what I'm most fascinated by is actually because it, it, it it's something of a trend in international football now where it feels, I mean, and the World Cup is a bit of a, an indicator in this, where it feels like there's a, there's a new fluidity to it, whereas sometimes there's a response to that, kind of mid-tier nations, that I would like, and I mean, again, Australia probably bigger and have more options than Ireland now, although we've got Evan Ferguson. Um, sorry to keep bringing it back to one of us. It's that, uh, it's that framework. But where, where teams are kind of built on a robust defence and... Um, and a, and, a, and a willingness to break from there. And I'm curious as to how, whether that will work against England and also whether that will set much of a template for a potential opposition sides in the Euros. Because I do, I do generally, actually, I, I think we're in a very interesting year in international football where I think at the moment, I mean, whatever about who the world champions are, I think that was a very specific circumstance because of Messi. I think France are the best team in the world and England are maybe just that level below them. And after that, actually, I think it's an extremely open era. We can see it in how a lot of big nations are having just quite erratic periods, particularly particularly in Europe, Germany, Spain, Italy. Um, and that creates this kind of new potential for Anita. And I think that, that's what I'm most interested in from, Australia, from Australia's perspective and how, how they take that on and how this approach will, will work and whether it kind of it informs much going forward. Um, Gareth Southgate, do you think this Euros is the make or break for him? And do you think he's the right man taking them forward? I mean, th this is basically the moment. I mean, if it actually feels like we've been saying this for the past three tournaments where if he doesn't win this one, then which one will he win? Uh, but th I think this one, the, the field has narrowed. Um, with Selke himself, I, I, I think he's 
pretty much perfect for that job. I mean, it's interesting. He gets a lot of debate in England uh, because one of the most common criticisms you see after any match where suddenly there's this horde of people who will just go, oh, he's too defensive, too rigid. We're never going to win a a tournament with a manager that tactically limited. And I think while there could be potentially fair criticisms of his tactical setup, he's certainly not um, a Guardiola. I think the and I'd be curious as to your perspective and you're as well, Phil, given especially working in Spain and how different the approach is there. Where if there is any potential tactical downsides, I think it's offset by what he actually does for the England squad, especially which is based, and people have likened this to Deschamps for me, where um, he just creates the right a spirit, culture. and that is so crucial, especially when it comes to a tournament. I think that's a bit too easily discounted. I have to say. Uh, uh, and like once he's got that quality and he's got him in a fairly good framework, after that it's the kind of the unity that matters a lot. It's worked for France, and it it, it has worked so far for England. Even allowing for this kind of generation of talent they've had coming coming through, they've done better than any time in history by sixty six. And it's the culture, isn't it? It's changing the culture, and that was something that I played with Gareth um, at Middlesbrough for a long period of time, and he, I would say was most critical about the culture with the national team, the England national team, when he compared it to us, Australia, because he could see how we were so desperate and determined to play every single game for Australia, wherever it was, and he saw England players pulling out left, right, and centre when he was a player himself, and he was desperate himself to play every time. Phil, that's kind of a thing that's been a problem for, for Spain for a long, long time. I mean, they've, they've, they've kind of... That's it, when they won the World Cup in 2010... Th- that changed, right? The, the culture leading up to it changed. There was no longer that division, was it? Real Madrid, Barcelona. Yeah. We had that with England, uh, yeah. you know, Liverpool, Man United players. It lasted about five minutes. Um, and now it's back. Uh, this is Spain is not a country of uh, a national team. It's a country of clubs uh, and people support their clubs and then um, they might support the national team depending on who is uh, managing the national team or who is playing for the national team. But it's a very, very, very different culture here, which has got all sorts sorts of uh, socio-political uh, uh, reasons which we don't need to get in right now at the end of the uh, Optus Sport Football podcast but yeah this is not a uh, this is not a country where national the, the national team is at the top of people's agendas for sure well that's unfortunate because they have been a phenomenal side over the years uh, Spain um, and it's interesting to see like you mentioned earlier on Miguel a lot of the big the big hitters of Europe struggling to find any consistency or any form and we could see quite a few of them possibly missing out on the Euros which will be interesting Thankfully, Germany have qualified um, by virtue of hosting it. So that's a big relief for me, that's for sure. Guys, that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you very much um, for both of you joining us. Miguel, for the very first time, thank you. Absolutely loved your insight. And thank you once again, Phil, as well. Pleasure. See you next week, mate. Absolutely. Uh, a reminder that every game of the Premier League and the Liga is live only on Optus Sport. We have European qualifiers this week and the WSL continues across the weekend too. Thanks for your company on the Optus Sport Football Podcast. See you next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.